if you're miserable in, in your job, you need to be a part of the revolution. <laughs> you need to be a part of revolutionary work. You, you don't hate Mondays, a- you hate capitalism. Hate that part. <laughs> that part, all right? I'm Autumn Brown, a middle manager at a major U.S. financial institution, longing to be free to pursue a master's in urban design, living on Dakota and Anishinaabe land, currently known as Minneapolis. I'm Adrian Marie Brown, a germaphobe who is having to navigate the entire world and learning that people are germs. I'm also a science fiction writer, a student of miracles and love, an emergent strategist and pleasure activist living in the land of the Shikori, Sparure, Tuscarora, and Lumbi people. People are germs, and this is how to survive the end of the world. <laughs> Our podcast about learning from apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity. <laughs> I'm like, welcome I'm back. Sniffly right now. So that's what's happening is I was around humans. Like, and literal germs are inside your body. I look very cute, uh, I think. <laughs> you do look really cute with your bonnet. I'm like, a bonnet and a sniffly nose is like a whole other level of intimate it's cuteness. A, that it's, a whole, it's a whole look. People don't always know about that. I'll take a picture and we can use that <laughs> as the visual for this episode of how cute I look right now. Um. <laughs> People girl, are going to go look. Okay. No. Um, um, hey, girl. I'm doing, doing really good. I am doing good. I mm. am. I'll talk about this more <laughs> in our flume of awe, but I am hosting friends in my home. And it's my first like guests that are not family members staying in my new house. Oh. Um, and it's just uh, there's just something so fun about, yeah, you know, in the wake of two years of pandemic time, getting to welcome people into my space um and just the delight also of like watching the way That's the right. kids are reacting to <laughs> to just you know it's like okay now we're sharing our space with other adults and we have things to say to them um so yeah it's really it's got my mood up 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 um <laughs> and i've had a couple of like hard things happen this week but um you know as as it is as it is in the world, but um, mm. but yeah, as soon as my friends arrived, it just like really changed my whole mood. So I'm happy today. How are you? Um, I'm feeling I'm like at, right at living at the intersection of tender and joy, um, and I just had like a big cry. I've been going through like major transitional moments in life that are like, oh, you need to like release grief when it comes, like when the wave of grief comes, let it move through, which is a different practice for me. I think generally I'm like, oh, grief, hold on. <laughs> let me schedule that. Grief, like I just can't find a place on the schedule for you. Sorry. Something. And it's like, um, you know, grief, sorry, that's not going to work for me today. I will get back. I'll have my people call you. Um, yeah, I. it's actually such a transformation in my way of being is that I'm like, relinquishing control over my emotions whatever control I thought I had like I'm really letting that go and just letting letting myself be like I'm a person who feels in the moment and it's helpful in my body because stuff is not like building up or 
being pushed down. Um, so that's incredible. And then this week has been a lot of joy, a huge amount of joy. So while I was home in Durham, a dear, dear friend of mine, Sada Flores, um, dropped through for dinner and we got to talk. And they're one of those friends who every time we're together, it's just like from the moment we we show we from the moment we land yeah, we're just yeah. talking nonstop yelling to each other out the doors we're saying goodbye you know like there's just so much to share so much to think about together and covid has made me appreciate togetherness so differently like i always knew like oh there's certain friendships that are like so great and i i i love the long distance friendship where it's like we might see each other like every 2 years right. and it's just like right. you're right. my favorite like person you know and it's great <laughs> Um, so that exactly I was just sort of like I don't know like I'm used to just being like when you're there it's great and then and then I'm here in Detroit for the Allied Media Conference Um, they set it up this year where it's like a hybrid model so it's a virtual conference but then Detroiters and then the keynote people are here in Detroit together doing the events live and um, it's kind of the perfect setup for me because it allows me to reunite with all my Detroit fam and yesterday Mm. was just like a love fest you know like it was just a love fest I was just like I love this city I love these humans I love the magic the cauldron the ceremony I love seeing how all the work we've been doing yeah it's the culture and it's just it's amazing to get to be um Mm. a recipient of a culture that you help co-create it's it's really cool. And last night, um, we got to see Diana Nucera and Aww. Jenny Lee and Mike Meadow honored. Um, wow. Because they've all, like, shifted into different places. That's right. right. It, yeah. Beautiful. So um, really tender. And then Sawatu and Mama Rhonda. Okay. Um, Sawatu. Like, and it's just like. I love that. You know. Exactly. Um, It's just, yeah, it's just so great. Like, it's just so many people that I'm like, I've been rooting for you my most of my adult life. (laughs) And here you are, like winning and just being great. So that's I feel really good. And it's just beginning. So today, I get to give it we get to do a plenary with the ESII team. That's Um, right. Collective plenary, collective plenary, it's gonna be bang, bang. Um, And yeah, and there's more. So fun. I so, I'm doing yeah. I am doing the funnest, most nerdy AMC session of all time. Can <gasps> I tell you about this? Tell me. My my dear friend Fisher, who's here, who's visited oh, my yay. friends Fisher and Sunny. Sunny, who's also one of my Aorta colleagues, are visiting, staying with me for the weekend. And Fisher and I are presenting a session called Speculative Budgeting resource management for our futures. So we're basically marrying <laughs> visionary fiction world building and budgeting. Oh, brilliant. Oh, brilliant. It's so nerdy and awesome. We're basically going to teach people how to reorient to the concept of budgets and finance through like yes. a freedom-oriented, visionary, wealth-building lens. Because you know I love I money love and it. I love talking about money. I know. Um, you do love money. I love money. I love it. Yeah. I love having it. I love spending it. Um, that's great. <laughs> oh, I'm so jelly. I wish I could be in person because you know Me I too. love the AMC. But I'm, 
I'm really, really excited for you that you get to be there. Thank you, sister. Yeah. Um, let's get into, well, okay, before we flume, before we just have we to flume. make a little room for um, a couple of things. One is yeah. we want to remind people about our Patreon. Um, oh, Zha Zha. Patreon, um, in case you haven't already <laughs> checked it out and signed up. What is Patreon, that? Patreon? Patreon.com <laughs> slash end of the world show. That's where you can go and directly financially support my love of money and wealth. Um, <laughs> and oh, no. in exchange, get some exclusive <laughs> podcast content and some merch that's real cute. Um, we work hard the, for the money. Yeah. <laughs> we work hard for the money. But then the other thing that we wanted to do uh, in the spirit of continuing to like bring in and include our listener voices. Um, y'all remember that we put out this call for folks to tell us what love feels like. Um, oh, yeah. and so we just want to make room for bringing in a, a listener voice who's going to tell us a little bit about what love feels like in their life. This is Thea Hart. In the past year or so, I've realized um, in joining the first relationship that I've been in in a while that falling in love after a long time feels a lot like breaking up. It feels like heartbreak to be broken open again after being closed for a while. And I noticed how falling in love reflects creates a perspective of synchronicity. I've noticed that when I'm in love, every song is about me and about the relationship. Even if it's a song about heartbreak, it's, it applies in a good way. And I think the best love is one that shows you the synchronicity that is there with life without the extremes. It just reminds you that everything is connected, even when it's not intense or dramatic or even notable. But that, that synchronicity is always there. Okay, I think on that beautiful note, we can yeah. flume it away. Flume right in. We can Let's flume away. <laughs> Enter our flume. 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 So we're in this really interesting moment, expected, a totally expected moment um, of American history, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, kind of in response to us having elected a black president, in response to major moves forward for queer and black and indigenous peoples and women's bodies and trans people and all of it. In reaction to all that forward motion, there has been this like massive backlash that is what it looks like when white supremacy recognizes how challenged it is and how precarious its position is. Um, and so there's been some major hard things that those of us who've been like, look, <laughs> look what's going to happen. This is definitely going to happen. <laughs> are all like, <clears throat> well, the thing that we said was going to happen is happening. But it doesn't make it any less hard as it's happening. Like, so right. 
Roe v. Wade has been um, overturned. Planned Parenthood versus Casey has been overturned. Um, the Supreme Court has made major moves against um, indigenous sovereignty of land. Um, it has basically decimated what the EPA can do to protect us. All, all of fronts, all these different fronts of, of advances we have made, um, nine people, most of them in some um, nefarious assignment, have... <laughs> Than overturning this, right? <laughs> like literally, the majority I really of them. I like, like that as like a tagline descriptor of what the Supreme Court is. <laughs> that's what it is. Nine people, most of whom nefarious. Okay, so um, are doing this, you know, and we're kind of in a bind because of of gerrymandering is going to make it hard to just straight up vote out the people that we want to vote out. And well, it and also looks we like, have like a court. Our our highest court system has more power than what would be typical in a country like ours. Of anyone. And we have um, the other branches of our government are being all chicken little, like someone should do something. It's like you. You are the only ones, right? So it can be like (laughs) overwhelmingly hopeless. Like, what do we do? And what is giving me deep awe right now is how the movements that have been building through this time, the reproductive justice movement, the indigenous sovereignty movement, black power movements, all of them are like, okay, let's move into action. Let's move into stance. Here's what we do. Here's when the march is. Here's the legislation. Here's the people that we can start working on voting. Here's all the abortion funds. Here's all the abortion funds that you can give your money to. Here's how you mail pills where you need to mail them to. Here's how you set up the boxes to receive them. Here's how you, you know, it's, it's just like everyone being like, we thought about it. We're rolling it out. Black feminists thought about it. Here are the solutions and those of us who are post-nationalist in all kinds of ways are also like, also, most of this is because this whole nation doesn't work. So mm-hmm. also be in these experiments of really tying in with your community and figuring out how we do survive <laughs> this period of human history. And you can, it's almost like a lens. You know, when you go to the place to get glasses checked on and they're like is it this or that and you mm-hmm. and they kind of slide you between so like through one lens i'm like it's hopeless and then i click to this other lens and i'm like oh this oh, is the portal yeah. through yeah. which like this entire horrific system that was founded in slavery and genocide and and robbery this is how all of it crumbles and in the midst of all of that humans who were trying to move towards justice are moving towards each other and moving towards life and moving towards justice. And I'm just mm-hmm. floored. I'm blown away. Um, I got to attend a rising majority event last week and I was just like, I have so much hope. <laughs> and you know, it's Gracie Boggs's birthday week as we are taping this. Mm-hmm. And I see her and I see so many of the, the lineage of thinkers that I trust showing up in all these moments. They're with yeah. us. Yeah. They have not left us. They are with us. They gave us what we need. We're giving each other what we need. So my awe is about that that human capacity to continue moving towards justice and liberation and love and freedom and community in spite of all odds. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Um, my flume of awe is related to the the hosting that I'm doing. <laughs> Yeah. It's um so I would say I've probably been 
I don't know, like in my in my peer group, I've probably erred on the side of continuing to be like more conservative related to like contact with others. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, in the last six months, I've done some more travel. Um, and visiting people. Um, but I've been, I think I've kind of continued to be like pretty cautious. So this yeah. hosting that I'm doing is like, um, it's the, yeah, first people that I've hosted who are not family members or neighbors, like who I'm kind of like in a sim in, on the block with in pods with. Yep. And, um, one of the things that is really, feeling magical for me right now is particularly with these beloveds Fisher and Sunny they're both folks that I have collegial relationships with which means that when I have seen them in the last three years it's been via Zoom um, and Sunny ah. is someone that I see all the time via Zoom um, and Fisher is someone that I work with via Zoom so getting to just feel their physical actual bodies like getting to yes. hug them, getting to and hold then people, getting to hold people, oh. and then also just getting to make actual eye contact with someone during a conversation versus yes. Zoom contact, which is not eye contact, yeah. um, is like very emotional. <laughs> it's like very, very emotional yeah. um, to get to really look into the eyes of these people that I love and. Um, and as we're like narrating what our experiences have been, what our experiences yeah. currently are, and like how we're changing and growing, um, yeah, it's just mm. the full presence of another body. You know, yeah. I'm just, yeah, in that list of things that we all, you know, I think we all have our lists now of like, what are the things that we're no longer taking for granted? <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> and, yeah, I'm just like, wow, I really, I pray that I will never take for granted this feeling, you know, with friends specifically, that. because I think that, I mean, I think you've heard me say this a few times. I feel like I'm a little bit of a broken record about this, that I feel like friendship is like one of the most special types of love and doesn't yeah. get enough credit for how special and important it is. <laughs> So, I agree. Should we do a whole episode on friend love? I think we should. I think we maybe even said that we were going to. So we should definitely do that. Okay, great. Um, it's on. Oh yeah, it yeah. Is on this so list. let's <laughs> let's just. It's on the list. Let's make sure that we do that soon because I have a okay. lot. Increasingly, as I get older, I have a lot of thoughts about like, um, yeah, just the necessity and and like the way that the way that our friends, the way that we allow our friends to see us and know us in ways that we don't necessarily allow family members or lovers to see us and know us. And um, yeah, anyway, so I'm just, I'm in awe of being in the physical, delightful presence of my dear friends. I really love this. And and I love, you know, there's a small, there's a soft thing in here that feels like a natural pivot to me, which is like both of us, we're talking about being in these situations that are basically the life's work that we're doing right now right. and getting to do some aspect of it with people that we love. Yeah. And that's like the thing we want to talk about today is work we love. And a big part of why work we love is lovable is because of getting people. to do it with people that we love. Like that yes. that's one of the guidelines. So 
we are blessed because um, our ancestor, Bell Hooks, actually gave us a lot of content about how love shows up in the workplace, shapes the workplace, and like a can weird shape amount. us. Like, <laughs> like a chapter um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> about this, right? So we want to bring in uh, Bell, and we're going to start off. So the way we're structuring this is, you know, Almost any time I talk to people about, like, find the work you love, like, work you love is so important. People are like, I can't do that. Like, that's all nice for you, Adrian. Like, you have some kind of unicorn situation, but I have to actually work out here. And I'm just, I need to make my ends meet. And, you know, and I'm like, absolutely. Right. I remember, first of all, I remember being in that place where it was like, I can't just leap off this and go do stuff I love. I, I spent a long time in jobs that were in some way deeply compromised because I needed to make the ends meet. Um, And then that's just also the truth of capitalism. It's like capitalism actually makes it really hard, nearly impossible to get ourselves into a place where we can truly do what we are meant to do, what we love with who we love. So we're going to start off by talking about what if we can't change the actual work we're doing, if we can't change the actual job we have to do. Bell Hooks gave us a lot of good wisdom on that. Then we want to talk about, okay, so we think we can do it, but how do we give ourselves permission to? Mm. And then we'll finally land it, okay, so we're ready, right? We've given ourselves permission. We know we can make this move. How do we find that work we love? How do we know it's the work we love? How do we sustain that? So that's how we're heading into this. And Autumn, would you bring Bell's wisdom in for this first piece? Like what if we can't change the work that we're doing? What? If we can't change it. So Bell Hooks yeah. had some really interesting things to say about this. So we're just going to bring in three quotes from her chapter in All About Love about this. Bringing love into the work environment can create the necessary transformation that can make any job we do, no matter how menial, a place where workers can express the best of themselves. When we work with love, we renew the spirit That renewal is an act of self-love. It nurtures our growth. It's not what you do, but how you do it. And I I think this is an interesting quote, too, because I think there's also, well, I'll come back to this. There's some interesting stuff that we have, I think, in the U.S. around the culturally what we orient to as like a job to be proud of that has a lot to do with this, right? Um, Okay, second quote is, doing work that we hate assaults our self-esteem and self-confidence. But when we work as well as we can, we can subvert this. And then she goes on to say, when I had a teaching job I hated, the kind of job where you long to be sick so you have an excuse for not going to work, the only way I could ease the severity of my pain was to give my absolute best. Doing a job well, even if we do not enjoy what we are doing, means that we leave it with a feeling of well-being our self-esteem intact. That self-esteem aids us when we go in search of a job that can be more fulfilling. Mm. Yes. So, So, go ahead. Yeah. No, well, I just wanted to say I have experience with this one. (laughs) You know, I really am remembering like, um, well, I want to say first of all that for most of the jobs, when I started them, there was a sense of hope. There was a sense of possibility. There was a sense of like, oh, this will be a good match for what I need right now. Even if it was like, this isn't the job at all that I want to be doing. Or 
you know, it's, it's secretarial or it's administrative or it's something that I'm like, how, how am I going to show my creative life here? How am I going to do that piece? Mm. Very rarely are we like, I'm starting this. I hate it from day one. I know I don't want to be doing this. But I think there's also, you know, for many of us, there's also phases where it's like, I'm, I'm having to go work in a restaurant that I know I don't love and I'm having to work, I'm going to have, I'm having to do a piece of domestic work, hard labor, other things for people where I might enjoy the job if I was being respected for what I was doing. But there's certain jobs that the entry, the way we view the job, and I think this is what you're getting at in the U.S., the way we view the job makes it as if it's menial, lesser than, less sacred work. And the overlap, one of the things Bell goes on about a lot in the book is the overlap between this and work that's considered women's work is high, right? Yeah. So, or work that's considered janitorial, the work that actually makes all these systems run, those jobs which are the most necessary during COVID, we learned this t- technology of the essential worker, right? Mm-hmm. Almost all of those essential worker jobs overlap with jobs that can often be joyless, right? Um, or ones that are being done and, and people are not thinking about the dignity in them. So I wanted to to name that when we're in those circumstances, there's a dignity that can come in from how we're choosing to do it, yes. And my hope is that this is part of what the restructuring and organizing that we're up to actually transforms on the grandest level is what is the work that we consider respectable work, right? How do we start to broaden that sense to all the work that has to happen. And I want to bring in Ursula Le Guin here. I always I want to put Ursula Le Guin just, and Bell Hooks. Literally <laughs> just about to be like dispossessed. The dispossessed. <laughs> okay. So talk about well, it. Talk about it. I mean, it, it's, it's so, I love, I love that we both went I love there us. in our brains I know. at the same time. That's so funny. Um, I, so what I was just thinking is like, it's so interesting. Ursula K. Le Guin's probably most famous work is called The Dispossessed and features a, you know, it takes place in a context where these, there are these two different um, planets, uh, yeah. or I guess, no, a planet and a moon of the planet. Yes. And the moon of the yeah. planet has a um, anarchist, essentially, very anarchist vision of society happening on it. And yeah. one of the ways that the society is structured is that people have work assignments yeah. that they cycle through. Um, and the, the, you know, whatever sort of the governing body is determines people's work assignments, determines people's schedules. People don't have a ton of control over, um, what they're expected to do or for how long, but folks work contributions are all considered equally valuable. Folks are all expected to do work that they're capable of. Yes. Um, and it doesn't matter if the job or it's like it's sort of like, yeah, some of these jobs might make you feel miserable because they're difficult things to do, but we're yeah. all kind of expected to do them. And it's a really different. And because of that, right, it's not that there's no I, I wouldn't say that she presents a, ver, a vision in which there's no valuing of certain types of work over others. That's but right. there's a recognition that the types of work that are difficult, dangerous, or in some way um, maybe repetitive, um, that those types of work are are equally valuable to the actual management and creation of society 
And therefore, everyone should be participating in those things, right? That's right. Um, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what other talents or skills you have. There will be time and place for you to go use those skills somehow. But right. you also have to do your assignment, right? And I think you know that's different. Even then, I, I think that when I've traveled outside of the U.S., one of the things that I've noticed is that like there are other places in the world where folks are like, yeah, my like job in this restaurant is my career, like. And this is my orientation to this is it's this is not a stepping tone to something else. This is something that I I value my work in this industry. Right. Yeah. But I think in an American context of a, for people of a particular class, I want to also be really clear here that yeah. for people of a particular class background, there is this extremely stratified relationship to work itself. Right. To the, right. And the idea that certain forms of work can be careers. And other yeah. forms of work are only are, are menial or are only things that we do in order to, you know, get our lives together enough to then make a stepping stone into a quote unquote career. And one that's of the right. things that's I mean, there's a lot that's there's a lot that's wrong with that, obviously. I mean, just the the depth of yes, everything you were just naming about just like how racial capitalism shapes all of that and patriarchy. But yeah. it's also what's also deep to me about it is that our the economic systems and structures that we live inside of are also rapidly disappearing any ability to have a quote unquote career, right? <laughs> and so right. we have we all, so we have this simultaneous like self storying that happens around like what who we are supposed to be, what we are supposed to do, and yeah. then inside of a structure that increasingly constrains what we can do. And then exactly. I, I think that that is part of what causes a lot of the sense of like a lack of meaning or lack of fulfillment that people have inside of certain jobs, which you can frankly experience in any job, no matter how, you know, you can, you can be at the top of your company and still feel a lack of meaning and lack of fulfillment in work. Right. And I do really actually that happens all the time. It yeah. happens all the time. It happens all the time. Right. Is that's yeah. what burnout is. Essentially. It's when you, it's like you're, you've gotten there and then you're like, fuck this place. And I think that, <laughs> but I do really like, I like bell hooks advice on this note of like yeah. the antidote to that feeling is to actually not to work harder, but rather to do what is your actual best so that at the end of the day, no matter what happens, no matter how yeah. poorly you were treated, you can walk away knowing that you stood you stood in your dignity. Yes. Deeply. So I really love, you know, I, I feel like you can see Bell Hooks's Buddhism showing in different pieces of, of all about love mm-hmm. in these beautiful ways. And this feels like one of the strongest ones where, you know, when I look back at the the work that has been the hardest for me to do, it was often the work where I felt the most obligation in, in the work, right? So, and I think this is true of these, you know, when people are like, oh, this job is, is menial, or this is a job that's on my way to something else, or that, you know, it's like, there's an oblig. I'm doing this work because I have an obligation. I need to either take care of my family. Um, I need to pay rent that's <laughs> beyond what I can afford. I need to do this. I need to do that. And then in the nonprofit world and movement space world, there's this other level of obligation we take on, which is like I'm trying to save the world through this organization through this and job. through this job, <laughs> right? Like we've we professionalized it, so now you have a job, and that's how you save the world. And 
um, and they were supposed to be trying to constantly recruit more people to take this particular kind of job on while also having so much obligation and so much, um, we're so beholden to philanthropy and how we end up doing the jobs that Mm. often we're doing stuff that feels like this doesn't even feel aligned with that liberatory thing I was trying to do, right? Right. And I think there's a really deep connection between obligation and misery, Mm. period, right? I think there's always a tie where it's like, if I'm not doing this because it comes up from a a desire in me, but I'm doing it because I feel obligated to show up, um, not, not in a right relationship, but it's like this pressure, right? So where the Buddhist piece comes in for, for, you know, where, where I think Bell is bringing this is, there's some things that we can change. There's some things that are kind of beyond our control. And we have to learn how to be present in every situation we find ourselves in. Right. And it's only by being present that we actually can create any kind of shifts. So this offering is like whatever job we find ourselves in, how do we land and get deeply present in that job? How do we do our own best, whatever that looks like. And that is literally the way I have survived the jobs of maximum obligation in my life. Mm. But I have been like, I will show up with the most integrity. I will work hard. I will work clearly. I will communicate clearly. I will speak up when I see something that feels out of alignment. I will right, just really do my best. And when I look back at all these jobs I've had, I'm like, some of that stuff was really a shit show. But... I showed up, my dignity was intact when I showed up and it was intact when I left. And, and there's another point, which I don't, I don't think we have the quote in this, but she talks about also that sometimes doing those jobs, which are the hardest and don't feel like the place, that's kind of how we figure out (laughs) the right stuff. Right. Yeah. So there's definitely jobs, you know, like when I came into movement, I was like, oh, being an executive director is, that's the natural arc. Like you just come in at an entry level and then you work your way into leadership. And I did every single job <laughs> kind of that you could do in movement, right? Um, and it was through doing each one of them that I was like, nope, it's not this. This is not the one. This is not a fit. This doesn't work for me. And it wasn't because I was not good because I was like, I'm doing a good job. I'm doing my best job. I'm doing the best I can, but it's not a fit for me. Right, and right. I'm grateful because all of that experimentation and trying, I gained incredible skills, right? right? I gained huge perspective. I gained huge analytical understanding. And I really am like, oh, I know what it's like to feel powerless inside of an organization that is going astray and to right. try to create a, ch- a change. I know what it's like for my work to be devalued and dismissed and also be some of the most important work that needs to happen in a place. Right. And I know what it's like to be everyone hyping you up and being like, you're a rock star. You're doing great. And, and you, you feel just feel drained and totally <laughs> sucked out from the inside, right? Like I know that full range. And I think that this guidance that Bell Hooks gives, which is like, do your best, gain the data, gain the skill set. And if it's not the right fit, right, then you'll take these next steps we're going to talk about, which is like, okay, then how do I give myself permission to, to shift towards, towards work that I can love, right? right? But I hear inside of this is like, I can love myself no matter where I am. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That at, the, at the end of the day, it's not about, I mean, I think that this is the through line of, of all of these pieces, right, that at the end of the day, it is about ultimately like, loving myself and loving the things that I'm 
uniquely capable of rather than That's loving right. what I may happen to be doing either by default or by opportunity. Um, mm-hmm. Do you want to do you want to take us into the this piece about how we give ourselves permission to actually do the work we love? Because there's a transition. I that think so. We have to make right. It's not like yeah. one day we land in the job that we love. It's That's like right. a process we have to go through. Yeah, and I want to before I even get into Bell Hooks's quote on this, I want to frame this up as like I really want I really want to make it as plain and as clear for people. I think that our revolutionary potential as a species, I think our revolutionary potential lands in a reorientation towards work, period, right? Yeah, work. So the fact that the majority of people think that they have to be in jobs of total misery and that there has to be a stratification of the miserable jobs and then this small pocket of cream of the crop jobs that we're all supposed to fight each other for, that is the lie. That is not how things have to be. It's not how they have always been. There are different ways to be in work that are rooted in different ways of being in community and different ways of being in relationship to the planet. It's where we come from. It's where we're going to. And all we have to do is figure out, like, how do we do that in a multicultural, multiracial way, right? There's not a ton of experiments in that. That's part of what we're figuring out. But I want to say, if you're miserable in, in your job, you need to be a part of the revolution. <laughs> you need to be a part of revolutionary work. You, you don't hate Mondays. A- you hate capitalism. <laughs> that part. <laughs> that part. All right. So, so Bell says, today, whether or not people call it by name, many people intuitively strive toward a right livelihood and embrace the belief that work that enhances our spiritual well-being strengthens our capacity to love. And when we work with love... We create a loving working environment, right? So this, you know, my friend Jody said this. It's like, when I'm happy, it's good for the world, <laughs> right? I feel like it's, it's this idea that, like, I think sometimes we think I'm being selfish if I, if I start to think about finding work that I love and, and being in a place where I'm not miserable. And it's like actually the opposite, right? When yeah. you're in those miserable spaces, what is getting produced and reproduced is that misery and that obligation and that pressure, that weight. Um, when work is redistributed and when you find your way towards work you love more, it transforms who you are and how you're going to show up in the world, which then transforms the spaces that you occupy, the relationships that you're in. And when you are in um, a situation where you're like, I know what I want is right over there, often the only barrier is the permission to pursue it, right? right? Even if it's like, maybe you'll get a no the first couple of times. There's definitely jobs that I went for that I was like, okay, I didn't get accepted for that. I didn't get approved for that. Um, you know, no one wanted to publish that. <laughs> Whatever it was, the, right. the first few yeah. times, the rejection is a part of it. And I always love to bring Octavia Butler in, but she talks about that as a writer, that she knew she wanted to be a science fiction writer. She always knew it. And she was continuously giving herself permission to pursue it, even as she worked as a day laborer, even as she worked in factories. She gave herself permission by waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning to work. She gave herself permission every time she sent out a story. And she got rejected and rejected and rejected, but she loved the writing. And she loved what she was creating. And that love pulled her through until she was able to sell that first story able to sell that first book, able to, through permission she gave herself, create a life that she really loved, 
And she was, it's not that you don't work hard in a life that you love, but first you have to give yourself permission that you, you are worthy of a life that you love. Mm. So I want to ask you this question, Autumn, because mm. I know we both share this experience. When you were in situations where it really felt like some level of compromise, how did you give yourself permission to make the leap? Because you're one of the people I think of as happiest in your work these days. Mm. Yeah, I am very happy in my work. Um, well, and it's, I'm thinking back to um, the early in my career when I decided to make a profession out of facilitation, yeah. which I did at a time, I don't think I knew anyone else who was doing it professionally at that point in time. I, I feel like I basically was like, I guess I'm just going to do this. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there were a lot of, I mean, there were tons of people facilitating in movements. Yes. Um, but, and that's where I learned it. Like I came up learning facilitation um, in movement spaces, like in anarchist spaces. Um, yes. And then part of what happened for me is that I had a nonprofit job. I was working in a disaster relief organization in New York City. Um, I that. And it was um, in some ways like a very typical um, experience of like, a big bureaucratic, well-resourced nonprofit organization, which we were, we were like a multi-million dollar organization. Yeah. We were like running the last 9-11 recovery program that existed in New York at the time. Yeah. Um, and so like a lot of institutions that it's like unexpectedly come into tons of money, there's no actual skill set necessarily inside the organization <laughs> for how to manage people or Talk how to like, it. right? So, um, so, I entered and I had a trajectory that a lot of people are probably familiar with of like when you enter a, a, a work setting like that where you are highly skilled but you're also very young, then it's yep. easy for your work to get taken advantage of, right? That's um, right? For your labor to be taken advantage of. So I was like promoted really quickly into leadership but then not given any of the kind of like compensation that would be associated with that. that um, <laughs> and so that was the place where I ended up experiencing that feeling of being compromised and um, and I loved the work I was doing there. I really believed in the work. I, I mean, this is where all of my foundation and disaster preparedness and disaster, my orientation to apocalypse work is rooted in like having started in that setting, right? I love that, And yeah. um, so it's shaped and informed a lot of my organizing work and a lot of my thinking, but, but then the job itself was a space where I, I frequently felt compromised not only by the compensation structure, but also by the way that leadership treated workers, right? Um, like I had a very, mm -hmm. very abusive boss. Um, mm -hmm. And part of what happened for me, and I don't know how much this like really answers the question about permission, but okay, I mean, maybe it does. Part of what happened for me is that it was one of my earliest moments of being, of saying to myself, whatever it is, can't be worse than this. <laughs> That's that is actually very relevant, right? Yes, it's like yes. what you know. Like if I if I look at the I'm and I think I also had a real I've I've I'm, I mean the listeners know this about me. You know this about me. I've always had a real sense of like I locate myself in time. Yeah, that's kind of my orientation to my own life. And so yeah. I think I was in my early 20s and I think I was able to also look at my, put, drop myself into time and be like, I have the rest of my whole fucking life ahead of me. Like yes. I'm young, 
I don't, yes. I don't need to be afraid right now. Right. That's like right. I'm young, I'm resourceful and whatever comes next truly cannot be worse than this abusive experience that I'm in. Right. That's right. Um, and at the same time, so maybe this might be of use to some listeners to hear, but at the same time, I was like actively facilitating a lot in movement spaces and teaching right. facilitation and teaching consensus decision making to activists and organizers in New York City. And it was just like kind of a light bulb went off in me where I was like, I'm really good at this. Like, I'm really, really good at this. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there's a gap here. Like, we have a lot of people in our, at that time, this is early 2000s, right? So at that time, we had a lot of people in movements who needed to be facilitating and lots of people who were offering facilitation trainings, but we didn't have a ton of people who were out here. Now there's like a glut, but we didn't have a ton of people out here who were like, <laughs> I am a facilitator and I, this is what I do. Right. Um, at least not to my knowledge. Um, and so I basically created a business. I basically like not knowing anything about creating a business, (laughs) That's right. not knowing anything about how to market myself. (laughs) I I literally just like created a, a description for myself of what it was that I saw myself doing and how I wanted to be of use to movements. And I, and I oriented first from a gift economy approach. Like I basically yeah. said to folks, this is the move, this is the move I'm making in my life. And I will, I will accept as payment, whatever feels like a gift for organizations to give me as I build up this business structure. That's right. That's and that right. was like 2007. Right. Yeah. Um, and, but for me, part of it, so part of the leap was like recognizing that Part of it, frankly, was recognizing, like, I absolutely deserve to be able to work and not be abused at the same time. Yes. And part of it was recognizing I absolutely am resourced and resourceful. And then part of it was, like, looking at my own skill set and saying to myself, well, what is it that I have to give? And if it doesn't exist, I'll create it. And that's increasingly true of in, in our generational context, it's increasingly true that folks will look around and say, if this doesn't exist, I'm going to go make it. Um, and, and that has its own challenges, right? Like some of the challenges associated with that way of being are like, you know, then you don't necessarily do a great job of bringing mentors to you, you know, or of asking for mentorship that's or right. getting the level of development that you need, right? So there's dangers but there's also something deeply liberatory about just saying, you know, that, okay, I, I don't see what's beyond that cliff, but I do trust that there's something there and That's I'm right. just going to go That's ahead right. and jump. I love that. And, you know, a lot of what you're saying, well, a couple of things came up. One is um, there's this tweet that is coming from uh, employee tears that was going around for a while. And it was like, if a job hires you on the spot and says, welcome to the family, you're about to experience multiple human rights violations. Um, and I, I really love this because I feel like like the first 10 years of my professional life were that, where they're like, oh my God, come on in. You know, like that we have a family environment. And I'm like, oh, like a lot of places have these hypertoxic, abusive environments under the name of like, it's a family, it's unaccountable, et cetera. Yeah. And then the other thing I thought about while you were talking was safety nets. Safety nets are one of the ways we give ourselves permission to leap, right? And capitalism structures it. So the, you know, wealth, like if you come into familial wealth or you come into 
like that's where your your class status is, then you have the safety net from your family. That's like, okay, I can take big risk or take big leaps. A lot of the people we see doing like venture capital experiments and starting new businesses and stuff like that are people who are like, I come from some kind of familial wealth right. that comes from slavery or land st- stealing. And so I'm able to do this. It's like, you know, yeah. they don't even think twice about it, right? Right, right. Um, <laughs> It's just like, yeah. And then there's folks, you know, like, I feel like by the time we were coming through college, we were solidly middle class. And so it's like, there's some safety net. Like, mm-hmm. you know, our parents love us. We're not, they're like, if we need to, we could move back into their basement, you know, or whatever. Right, right, like that right. was available. But there was not like that financial, like here, we can just give you money to go run. You know, they're yeah. like, you guys have to get, No one's like, like paying our rent for a year in New York City. No, no, no. We had, <laughs> you know, it's like we just had to figure it out, right? And like, I think, I mean, I think I got my first job when I was like 12 or 13 years old. Like it was a, we had a, that's, that work ethic was yeah, actually its own safety net. And I think for people who have that, who are like, yeah, work, I, I work. That, yeah. you know, being, I'm capable of doing work. Um I also think that there's a safety net that comes from developing hard skills. So it's so funny, like when you talk about that facilitation that I was always like, I'm good at this, but like, I'm also really excellent at note taking. And that's like going to be my hard skill fallback. Like if at any point, like no one wants to hire a facilitator, because it always seemed kind of fluky to me that like people would hire me to do that part. I was like, it's okay because I'm a good note taker. You and I'm are sure a that really good note taker. I am. A, I, still to this day, I'm like, you know, that <laughs> recently, I, well, actually, Rising Majority was like, oh, we're going to do this thing in Durham. And I was like, maybe I could be the note taker. You know, like, right. I was just like, oh, like maybe my, <laughs> you know, I was like, I've got this skill set. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and I want to name that, like those kind of, like not being above, like I, I've still never gone to a meeting where I'm like, I'm above taking notes. I'm like, no, that hard skill it feels like the safety net that makes me feel like I have an offer to make anywhere I show up that I'm like, yes. I'll be able to like document and organize and synthesize this in a way that I know will be useful. And, um, sometimes it's also like, it takes time to develop the safety net. So a lot of times when I've talked to people who are younger than me, there's a way that they expect to be able to leap from wanting to do something to already being highly employed and gifted and skilled and expertise in that thing without seeing that there's a decade, usually a decade of time when you're developing hard skills and things. And that development of hard skills is part of what gives you the safety net. Excellence is a safety net, right? So I really want to name that. Like when you do find something that you're excellent at, even if it's not your passion, like right now today, I'm like, I don't facilitate. I'm writing. But the facilitation, I'm excellent at that, is in my back pocket that if people are like, you know what, the writing's trash, I can be like, okay, well, let me fall back. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Let me fall back to a place where I can still make a relevant offer because there's that excellence there. So I I I don't think anyone has said that your writing is trash so far. No, no, I haven't gotten that, but I'm not, I'm not does... concerned about that for you. Just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, sister. Um, well, you know, I mean, like most creative people, I think it's like, you're both your biggest fan and your hardest critic, right? I'm like, yes, this totally. song is incredible. And then the next song I'm like, oh my God, why That's did so I think stupid. I could write why songs? Why did I even put that? Why did I record that? <laughs> I was like, delete. Anyway, so <laughs> I never delete. Um, but I do think that there's, there's something here that's like, it just feels important to really like lay these things out, right? Because we have a lot of different ways we can build our safety nets. And then the final thing I want to offer people, and this one has blown my mind every time in my life that I've done it, is making budgets to really have a sense of like, 
how much does the life I really want cost and how could I subsidize that life? And am I willing to leave the most expensive places in the world in order to follow the dream that I have? Right. Right. So like a lot, I'm like, if you are like, I'm in LA, I'm in New York, I'm in, you know, like one of these cities where I'm like, okay, so your rent by living in that place, your rent is twice, sometimes four times more than what it would be in some of these other places. And are you willing to (laughs) move to free up some resources for your dream? Right. Right. So, you know, when I was like, I have a really big vision of becoming a writer, moving to Detroit was a really helpful thing for me to do from, from Oakland. Right. It was like, I can actually live. When I first moved to Detroit, I was in an apartment for $400 a month. And I had access to tons of culture, tons of art, tons of creativity around me. But I was like, I can afford to live here and to experiment some, right? Yeah. But sitting down with a budget and being like, okay, if my rent is 400 a month, if it's 800, if it's 1,000 a month, whatever it is, you know, I can figure that out. What is healthcare going to cost? What is my food budget? What is this mm-hmm. going to cost? And I love, and I love that you're doing this budgeting thing because I'm like, this, I think people really overlook so often when I'm coaching people, I'm like, oh, you didn't even do a budget yet for this yeah. <laughs> leap. Exactly. You know, you're like, you want to take this massive leap. And in your mind, it's impossible because right. you're like, I need job stability. I need financial stability. But I'm like, you're not have you know, you don't have any mental stability where you are right now. And if you made these adjustments, like you actually could easily have the resources you need totally. to live a life and I, and still have three hours a day to write or whatever exactly. it is, right? I think about this a lot because I think, um, yeah, I think one of the things, you know, as our listeners know, we grew up in a military family. And yeah. for me, part of what that meant is that when I was um, going through elementary and middle school, most of those years I was in Department of Defense schools. And which are like public schools, but like run by the military. And um, (laughs) when I was in middle school in Germany, um, we actually were taught financial management. Like it was one of the things that was like taught and valued within our school system that like members of military families should learn. And I think about how much that has shaped the trajectory of my life that like I had access to financial management education at a really young age and that I didn't, you know, I didn't go off to college knowing nothing about the relationship between budget versus actual, you know, that's right. That's right. That's right. (laughs) And and now in the work that I do, right. Cause now, and now is a good, we can kind of transition into this, the third art part of this arc of like what happens when we do finally land in the place of being able to do the work that we love. Because now, fast forward in my journey, you know, from launching my little facilitation practice in 2007 to 2016, joining the Anti-Oppression Resource and Training Alliance as a candidate for ownership. And now it's 2022, I'm six years in, and I'm a co-owner of a business Um, where I make a great salary. I have health benefits. I have a great time off. I have maximum flexibility. And most importantly, one of the reasons why I love what I do is that I'm in a democratic workplace, right? I'm in a horizontal formation. I have just as much stake and say in everything that happens as everyone else in my business does. 
I work with some of the most brilliant people in the U.S. I get yes. to like have conversation. I get to be in political home with the most brilliant minds, right? Yes. Like that's my job that I get to go to every day. And is it hard sometimes? Yeah, it's really hard sometimes. <laughs> it's really hard sometimes. The hardest thing being, you know, that, you, you know, when you're in a co-op and you're in a democratic formation, you are fully responsible for whatever happens. There's no one to Everything. blame for anything, <laughs> right? right. Um, yeah. So it really pushes you. Like it's for all of us inside of Aorta, it's really pushed us to every day live more fully into our politics. Every single day we have to live more fully into our politics and live more fully into our vision because because we're out here innovating on the front leading edge of like what is possible in a workplace, right? That's right. And that has been so such a profound thing, but but then to me it does it still does link back to this piece around money. And Absolutely. Wealth, right? Where it's yeah. like you know, like for me one of the big shifts was understanding this democratic formation and cooperative business, not just as a place of political home, not just as a place where I could feel good and love the work that I do, but also as like a place, a tool for wealth building for me Mm -hmm. and for my communities, right? And that like co-ops themselves as a tool for wealth building for our communities. And that like, ultimately, when we're thinking about, I think when we're talking about loving the work that we do, yeah. I don't I don't think we can really disconnect the question of loving the work that we do from um a felt sense of security and resting down that yeah. is associated with being loved. Right? Uh-huh. So to uh-huh. kind of bring some of Bell Hooks' stuff full circle, it's like when we're thinking about like what does it mean to be loved or to experience love or to love one another there's something there's the piece about making other people feel free but to me there's also something in the felt sense of being loved that's about like getting to feel secure secure enough to rest and so if I'm thinking about getting to feel love at work and getting to feel the sense that I love what I do then for me that's also a space in which I need to feel secure enough to be able to rest down my nervous system. Most of us don't have workplaces like that. And even the best workplaces aren't always like that. But that is one of the things that we think about a lot in like in our work culture in Aorta. We one of the things we prioritize most highly is our culture of care so that we can help facilitate a sense of financial security and emotional security. I love that. At work. I really love that. I mean, it really speaks, you know, the two things I was going to bring into this, and then I want to bring Bell, another quote from Bell Hooks into this, but the two things I wanted to bring in were the idea of enough and the idea of belonging. Mm. So, you know, I was thinking about like, how did I get clear on the work that I loved? What is it? What are the factors? How do I protect it? Like, you know, I'm like, oh, I got clear because, first of all, I realized I don't need to be constantly seeking more. Once I had done that budgeting, I'd gotten clear on, like, here's what I need. This is my enough for financial stability. Right. And as long as I can hit that, I know I'll feel that financial security in my life. That's good. And then what is enough work for me, right? And Mm -hmm. I'm an ambitious and very highly productive person. So it takes a lot of work to satisfy the part of me that's like, I need to do work, <laughs> right? Yeah. And not everyone's like that. Everyone, I know people who are very, very, very different places. Very few people are like that. <laughs> <laughs> but I do want to make space, right? Because I feel like often there's like, 
you know, there is definitely the patterns of overwork and, and all of that is there. And I think for each person, there's actually like a, a place where you hit it and you're like, that's it. That's the pocket for me. Mm. And, you know, uh, for me, that pocket is like, I have a really high, there's like, I need a lot of input output, you know, the, with the way my brain works, with the way I am, I'm like, I love having to write every day. I love having to publish every week. I love having, you know, like to me, those, that nourishes that that's what it feels like enough for me. Right. And, but the belonging is equally important to the enoughness. So Mm -hmm. if I'm in a situation that's like, here's enough money and here's enough work to do, there's the right amount of work to do, but I don't feel belonging. And the ways you can not feel belonging is when you feel betrayed at work, when you feel like the culture is one of gossip, when you feel that the culture is one where people are competing and tearing each other down, when you feel like it's one where, um, you know, for me, it's always important like that I'm like, even if someone has to leave the work environment, that doesn't mean they stop belonging to the political movement or the political home space or the ideas of something, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm like, maybe it doesn't work as a job, <laughs> but that doesn't mean you're not still a part of this thing if you want to be, right? Like political home is where we develop belonging. And right. I think that that's actually an important part that for everyone, you need to figure out like, what is my work in relationship to political home? And, you know, right. for me, same same of what you're saying about Aorta, I feel like the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute is like this political home base for me that I'm like, I deeply trust my coworkers. I feel a deep sense of belonging to both them and the larger network and like all the different formations and community that we're building. It's like, we belong to these ideas. We belong to these ideas that we are co-creating and generating and growing in the world. Mm. And it's thrilling. And so, the belonging is so deep that when I meet someone who we, we don't know each other at all, but they're like, murmuration, starlings, you know, we start getting into mushrooms, mm-hmm. whatever. And I'm like, we belong to each other and we yeah. belong to this earth. And I know that I'm on the right path with the work that I'm doing. And I want that to be important. I want people to really land that, right? That I'm like, it's not going to satisfy that right livelihood piece if it doesn't satisfy that sense of enoughness and stability. And if it doesn't satisfy that sense of political home, like this aligns with who I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to be doing in the world. Mm -hmm. So here, do you want to read the bell hooks quote into this conversation? And then um, I think we can say a few more things here and then... You know, I, I want to hear from you about how you protect the work you love now that you have found it. Mm. Yes. Yeah, so this this is a really um, this is a really good quote for talking about how we protect it. Um, so this last quote that we're bringing in from Bell Hooks is: When I first declared my desire to work in a loving environment, friends acted as though I had truly lost my mind. To them, love and work did not go together. But I was convinced that I would work better in a work environment shaped by an ethic of love to follow the Buddhist concept of right livelihood or livelihood guided by purpose and integrity. Um, And I think Mm -hmm. to me, part of how this relates to the concept of protection is, is that I think that having a workplace or, um, even if it's not a workplace, it could be like a network of folks who are doing similar types of labor. Yeah. Um, but having a shared, like, 
set of political principles or values that guide what you do and how you make decisions yes. um, or just how you even orient to the work itself, that is protective um, right. because it gives you a way to no matter how what happens and no matter how hard things become, it gives you a way to um, be principled, to be principled in the orientation to work. Um, I know that that has been the thing that's been most protective. I mean, it's also the thing that has caused us in Aorta to have to push ourselves further and further. But it's also been the thing that's been most protective of our workplace is to have political principles that we adhere to um, in the way that we orient to one another, the way that we orient orient to the work itself. Because we all have our moments of drift. We all have our moments where we're not being super principled. We all have our moments of pettiness. Um, being human and being human and you know actually my my friend Carrie points once said to me and I have it written somewhere like in my office um, that petty makes way for kind so um, <laughs> <laughs> I do believe that that we also need our spaces to be a little petty but totally. but our principles are what help us get back into alignment right uh, with like yes. all right well how are we still living into vision and values here right um, I think I that just that's love protective. that because I'm like Allied Media Conference, ESII, like all the places that I, you know, Black Organizing for Leadership and Development, they're all principle based. Exactly. They really yeah. are. Yeah. And that, and it, it creates like a actual possibility for like survivability for the work that we do, right? Because, you know, it's not lost on me. The people that we are fighting, they have principles that they are operating from. That's that they right. adhere to, right? That's right? They are very, very clear about what they're doing. You know, so a lot of what makes our, uh, if we're thinking just in terms of like the workplaces that make up our like leftist movements, a yeah. lot of the mess that we deal with has to do with unprincipled behavior and a lack of having an orientation to vision together, right? And so we and we really are at a stage in history just to, you know, kind of bring it full circle to what you were talking about at the very outset of this recording. (laughs) We can't really afford to be as messy as we've been, you know, like we (laughs) really need to get on track. Well, yeah. And I think maybe this will be my click. Last thoughts on this is like Mm -hmm. having a sense of our, you know, I keep thinking about gracing. What time is it on the clock of the world? Having a sense of time is the way we ultimately protect the work that most matters, I believe. Both Mm. our own time, it's like, I am going to die. How do I want to spend the hours of my life? Do I want to spend them in service of that which I oppose or in service of that which I want to forward? Even if I'm in a workplace that is structured around what I oppose, right? Even if that's where I have to be, I'm flipping fries at McDonald's. How even in that workplace, am I able to bring the principles of collectivism, the principles of camaraderie, the principles of interdependence, the principles of liberation, the principles of dignity, right? How do I still bring that everywhere I go? And I think we have to start to orient that way that like the majority of people who are going to be part of our liberation work will not necessarily get a movement job, right? Right. And even if you do get a movement job, like I've had every movement job and then I realized my job (laughs) is to fucking write. I have to go Right. I have to be a philosopher. I have to think the ideas through. That's what I'm called to do. And that writing is of service to this larger vision that I hold. Even if I'm writing fiction 
erotica scenes, it is of service to the largest ah! vision that I hold, right? Because that's what I'm writing. It is of days. service. It's of service, <laughs> literally, right? So there's something about time, though, that has that clicked for me that I was like, I have spent the time I needed to spend getting excellent at the things I need to get excellent at. And I have also spent time developing the political analysis around where I, with my passion and my skills and what the world needs, can have the most impact in my life. Mm-hmm. And I think that's possible for every single human being to get in right relationship with your own mortality and with where we are as a species and then play your position. And you'll know it's your position because it gives you joy when you find it. There you go. That's such a great way to close. Um, <laughs> on that note, we're going to bring Sister. in. Yes, we're going to bring in one more bit of listener audio before we okay, shift good. into top culture. Um, we've been putting out these movement hymns and with our most recent um, movement hymn that we put out, the the sovereignty hymn that came from the Bengsons that Adrian sang for us. We will not, we will not, we will not be controlled. I am sovereign in my body. I am sovereign in my soul. We, um, we also invited listeners to send us hymns, and we've already gotten some really, really gorgeous audio from listeners. So here comes our first piece of listener audio. This is from Ren. The dirt is heavy, but we know that seeds will grow if we tend them. The dirt is heavy, but we know that seeds will grow if we tend them. The dirt is heavy, but we know that seeds will grow if we tend them. Wow, so gorgeous. We love you, Ren. Thank you, Ren. Okay, before we close out, so much. Let's get into some top culture. I'll be quick. Okay, you be quick and then I'll be quicker. My top culture is once again my children. Um, (laughs) Always my children. My children are one of my my friend recently said to me, like, I love kid performances, but also your children are like legitimately talented. Uh, And um, so this last week, my youngest Varade participated in a musical theater dance camp. And she and her peers learned four songs from famous musicals. Not just the songs themselves, but choreography. And in the course of four days of camp, that and the camp days were only three and a half hours long. They learned full choreography, story, and song for It's a Hard Knock Life from Annie. It's a hard knock life for us. It's a hard knock life for us. What else? Can I do from Encanto? Um, this is me from The Greatest Showman and Do Re Mi from Sound of Music. 
And it was... I'm ready for the full auntie faint. It was absolute joy. It was absolute joy. I will send you all the videos. I took an individual video of each of the songs during the performance Thank you. yesterday. <laughs> so I'm like, I need everything. Um, wow. And, okay, so that's you know, about to be I am, I am, as our listeners know, I am deeply a musical theater nerd. Oh, um, deep. So... I didn't intend to, sh- to sign Marita up for a musical theater dance camp. I intended to sure. sign her for a dance camp, and they made it a musical theater dance camp after we registered. So it was a total fluke, and it was a <laughs> wonderful like, I wasn't fluke. being a momager. It just I wasn't happened. being a momager. It just happened to be perfect for uh, everyone, <laughs> myself included. That's my top culture. What's yours? I love your top culture. Thank you so much. My top culture is I have four things. Okay, so... Quick one way. is Beyonce Knowles. Beyonce, Beyonce Knowles. Um, <laughs> just keeps coming for us in every possible way. And I just want to say that On a horse this made of light. She is on a horse <laughs> made of light. And so there's a whole set of memes around Beyonce on horses that every single picture of her on a horse is like a perfect thing. She is a living stallion. She is incredible. Um, and mm. I'm just, I'm here for like, she just keeps being like, I'm, I'm coming for everything you have. Right. And she posted it with a caption. A caption? She never, a she whole never, caption. She okay. never does that. She don't do captions, but she said, I was like, is she perfectionism? No, she's loving us. So then, okay. Cousin Brandy, the incredible Brandy, the songstress who sounds like, um, I just feel like she sounds like. I love like, that right now you're touching your cheekbones as I'm you're talking about I'm touching my Brandy. cheekbones full of joy because I just like, I love Brandy. First of all, she's just the mo- she has the most gorgeous cheekbones. She has the this, most gorgeous but cheekbones. But she does this song, Rather Be, and she it's the colors, um, the color show um, remix of it where she's basically singing every layer of vocal in it. And it is, she just sounds like if a cloud was made out of honey and it was all black and it was like silk. That's okay. what she, her voice sounds like. Right, it's just perfect. And on Twitter, you can see this beautiful back and forth of Brandy and Mariah Carey just being in love with each other and being like, you're the best. No, you are. No, you are. It's just so sweet. So that's the second. Go find that and watch it on YouTube because she's orchestrating the whole thing with her hands. So she's literally like using her hands to move and redirect the notes that are coming out of her mouth. And you're like, the body is an instrument. Brandy, you're incredible. Amazing. Love Island UK is back. So if you need something that's just like, it's time to go to bed. I want to watch some really beautiful people walk around in swimsuits and like, just be like, he's got nice chat. I don't know. Like they, nothing makes any sense. There's no real drama. Even you can just put it on and go to bed. It's really good sleep medicine. Great. And then I am claiming it right now. I'm claiming myself as a top cultural moment this week. Hey, I got to be on, on being with Krista Tippett. She grew up loving science fiction and thought we'd be driving flying cars by now, and yet has found in speculative fiction the transformative force of vision and imagination that might in fact save us. Our younger listeners have asked to hear Adrienne Marie Brown's voice on On Being, and here she is as On Being enters its own time of evolution. 
I this really wanted this. Like those who know me know that I really, I love on being, it was a goal. And I was like, what are, what is a goal? You know, someone was like, well, what podcast would you like to be on? I was like, on being with Krista Tippett. Obviously. And, um, <laughs> We did this gorgeous conversation. I recommend the unedited version. Um, it's it's real. We just cover so much ground, and like listening back to it, I can feel all the ancestors that shaped me showing up in the room. And I just feel like it was it's 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 good medicine. I really I promise it's good medicine. Yeah. And it's the last episode of their weekly radio show. So um, they're wow. shifting they're shifting into a different format. So wow. it's it's a big deal. Yeah, it's a That's big deal. Cool. But. Yeah, and I I don't promote this stuff generally, but I had to say something about that. Um, I'm so and- proud of you as a theologian. <laughs> as a theologian, it's a big deal for me that you were on on Bean because I, I was just telling folks like when on Bean used to be called Speaking of Faith, and when it was exactly. Speaking of Faith, it was the first podcast I ever started listening to. So oh, it's sister. like I've been following this show for a very long time. I haven't been a recent listener, but yeah. I followed it for a very long time. So it's very, very cool that you were on I that show. It. All right, happy. here we go. Thanks for listening <laughs> to our show. We're on Twitter and Instagram at End of the World PC. We're also on Facebook at End of the World Show. You can make a sustaining donation to our show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash show. Another incredible thing you can do to help our show sustain itself is to write us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you're an iPhone person, you can also just write about us on the internet or you can send us an email telling. We get emails a lot from listeners just telling us how much they love the work that we do. And we read, we just want you to know, we, read it all. we always read them. We cry with them. We love them. We love hearing from you. Thank you. We swoon with you. Today's show was produced and edited by Zach Rosen and transcribed by Sarah Rubbins Breen. Music for today's show comes from Tunde Alaniran and Mother Cyborg. And then a final greeting as you guys are leaving out the door. My new greeting that I'm saying to everyone I get to see again after the pandemic and I wanted to offer it to you is, I am so glad you made it this far. Let's take each other seriously. Let's be so precious with each other. Love y'all. We'll see you next time. Beautiful.